0: Against the Odds, AHC's inaugural podcast series featuring the true stories of real-life bands of brothers who exhibited unparalleled bravery, solidarity, and endurance on the battlefield to come out on top in a fight against impossible odds. Reliving battles from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and Iraq, these are true stories of the harsh realities of war, as told by the veterans who survived to tell. I'm your host, Shane Bowler. And this week we present, A Chance in Hell, The Battle for Ramadi. May
1: 2006, Iraq. You hear the rumors of these huge, deep buried IEDs that are just disabling tanks and it's hard to even fathom what the most dangerous city in Iraq would ever feel like.
0: Ramadi is considered by the U.S. military to be the most dangerous city
1: in Iraq. I came into country naive, just like any other cherry second lieutenant. Didn't know what I was up against, and of course, I had all the paperwork to prove that I was qualified for the job, but nothing ever really prepares you for what you're about to face.
2: I mean, we knew it was dangerous, we knew it was violent, but and we didn't realize how violent it was.
3: The U.S. military can end insurgent violence.
4: Colonel McFarland really took a 180 degree different approach. He decided that this was something they were going to win. We are not going to accept the fact that parts of this city are in al-Qaeda's hands. We are going to take it back. We are going to go wherever we want, whenever we want. We're going to take al-Qaeda on head-on.
2: When Colonel McFarlane said that we were going to push into Ramadi, you know, they kind of took me aside and they said, hey, uh, you guys are all going to get killed if you try to do this.
5: Soldiers just automatically knew where the most dangerous point was on the battlefield, and they went there on their own. We were the ones that were on the front line doing what other people couldn't do.
1: I knew that it was going to be tough. I mean, no one really knows what it's like to pull the trigger or what it's like to get shot at. But what I can never really live with is letting my platoon down. And that's the amount of trust that, like, that you build. I would do anything for those guys. This is their
0: story. A chance in hell the battle for Ramadi. Mike McCusker, Company Commander, Bravo Company. 1st Battalion, 36th Infantry.
3: The first thing they do is start firing rockets at the FOB with the idea of just really attempting to, I guess, assert themselves as the dominant force in Ramadi. The frequency that they started shooting indirect fire right when we first got there was two or three attacks a day, um, an attempt to get some casualties, an attempt to, to scare, so to speak, the new forces that were on the ground.
0: Perfecto Sanchez, platoon leader, Bravo Company, 2nd Battalion, 6th
1: Infantry. I came into country Naive. Just like any other cherry second lieutenant, didn't know what I was up against and of course I had all the paperwork to prove that I was qualified for the job, but nothing ever really prepares you for what you're about to face.
0: Ian Blackstone, platoon leader, Bravo Company, 2nd Battalion,
6: 6th Infantry. I was an unproven leader, I mean we all are until we get to combat. I was a platoon leader. I was a young man in charge of men who were mostly older than me, and that's just how the Army worked. Most of my platoon had already deployed to Iraq. This was their second deployment, and I was unexperienced in that way. But I had a lot of confidence.
0: Mike Byma, Commander, Team Bulldog, 1st Battalion, 37th Armored Regiment.
5: Our training prior to going to Ramadi for direct action or hostile fire with the enemy was gunnery some small arms ranges. But we didn't have the opportunity necessarily to train on mount operations, which is urban operations prior to going. I just didn't know or how to anticipate the level of hostility from the insurgency.
0: Three years after the defeat of Saddam Hussein, the battle against insurgents in Iraq is being steadily lost to an insurgent force that survives and metastasizes through its near total control of local populations. The supposed master weapons, electronic, aerial, and armored, have proven impotent against a foe that materializes out of nowhere and melts back into a population terrorized into silence and cooperation. Nowhere is the situation so deteriorated and hopeless as in the city of Ramadi. By 2006, insurgents roam freely in many parts of the city. Local government and police forces have all but been eliminated by insurgent intimidation and terror. Al-Qaeda has arrogantly declared Ramadi its capital, ground zero for a terrorist state, intent on spreading its control over all of Iraq. Jim Michaels, author of A Chance in Hell.
4: That's the scene that Colonel McFarland, the Brigade Commander, stepped into uh, when he set foot in Ramadi in May of uh, 2006.
0: Colonel Sean McFarland, Commander, 1st Brigade, 1st Armored Division.
3: The folks that we are fighting are the same kind of folks that uh, took down the World Trade Center and drove an airplane into the Pentagon. And Al-Qaeda, they want to establish a caliphate with its uh, heart here in Al Anbar Province. This is our opportunity to stop that vision in its tracks.
4: The overarching strategy at that time was really something of a commuter war. You know, Americans were on the large forward-operating bases the u.s strategy at the time was to sort of commute out into the into the conflict during the day uh, draw back in at night now what that meant is you can't protect the population the population's not going to come onto your side if you can't protect them because if they say we're going to support you the united states al-qaeda is going to come along and kill you your family your kids and so forth
0: anthony dean commander first battalion 35th Armored Division.
2: The situation just kept getting worse and worse. So large portions of the city hadn't seen a coalition soldier in probably eight, 10, 12, 16 months by the time we showed up. There was a plan not to lose. We were gonna hold the roads open. We were gonna keep fighting. When we had good intelligence, we were gonna go do raids and go kick in doors and bring in terrorists. But there really wasn't a plan on how we're gonna win this thing.
3: We have learned tonight U.S. forces are apparently preparing to walk away from a big part of Iraq, the hugely important Anbar province. A
4: new military intelligence report offers up the most pessimistic assessment yet of the military prospects for Al-Anbar province. The top secret report by a Marine Corps intelligence officer says there's no chance the U.S. military can end insurgent violence in Al-Anbar. Ramadi was a sideshow. It's it's what the military calls an economy of force mission. This place out west, it's a Sunni stronghold, sit on it so we can concentrate on Baghdad. Colonel McFarland really took a 180 degree different approach. And he decided that this was something they were going to win. This was not a question of of sort of putting a lid on a boiling cauldron. We are not going to accept the fact that parts of the city are in al-Qaeda's hands. We are going to take it back. We are going to go wherever we want, whenever we want, and we're going to secure the population. We're going to take al-Qaeda on head-on.
3: Well, we're not going to control, you know, this one street or this one block for 15, 20 minutes and then move back into the fob and then the other, 23 hours and 45 minutes the insurgents control it. We're gonna go out and we're gonna live there. We're gonna live, we're gonna live on that street, on that block. We'll be involved in influencing that neighborhood and that portion of the city 24 hours a day.
0: McFarland will send his men directly into the heart of enemy-held territory where they will live and fight in a series of combat outposts dubbed cops. The mutually supporting sites will secure Ramadi block by bloody block, pushing the insurgents out of their strongholds and break the grip of fear and violence that has plagued and suppressed the population.
1: The streets of Ramadi are turning into the wild west of Iraq. Days of
5: including Anbar, account for more than 80% of the attacks that we hear about on an almost daily basis.
3: Well, Colonel Sean McFarland, a U.S. commander in the area,
5: says troops are making...
4: Many people who looked at this brigade going into Ramadi basically thought they would fail at what they did. It's hard to, to realize, in retrospect, just how much the odds were stacked against this unit.
2: When Colonel McFarland said that we were going to push into Ramadi, Word was kind of out on the street, and uh, some of the guys, you know, they kind of took me aside and they said, hey, uh, you guys are all going to get killed if you try to do this. this. This is not the answer.
4: There was no guarantee that by any means that this tactic was going to work. Almost certainly it was going to lead to higher casualties. This is a strategy where you are taking the fight to the enemy. You're going to pay a price for that.
0: McFarlane wastes no time in leading his handful of maverick, wildly unconventional young officers and soldiers into dangerously uncharted waters. He must turn the entire system of war on its head, and replace it with a bold, radical new idea that will send the men of the 1st Brigade into the very depths of hell. And with the American troop withdrawal already begun, time is running out.
2: Against the Odds returns on
3: A.H.C.
4: Every day was hell. All of a sudden, it seemed like
3: everything around here, every house, every little window, fire was coming from everywhere. They started firing machine guns, rockets, RPGs. You can see the guys getting hit and still advancing
1: forward.
4: The buck stops here. We put our sweat, blood, and tears into that city.
1: Everything inside of you changed. I hope I get out of this
2: alive. All new Against the Odds. Monday at ten on AHC. I'm
1: so getting this organization. I'm down. Yes, sir. I
0: have a positive idea within weeks of arriving in Ramadi. The 1st Brigade has taken the reins in the battle for what has become the most dangerous city in Iraq. Colonel McFarland, commander of 1st Brigade, has rejected the idea that Ramadi cannot be won and initiates a radical new plan meant to take the fight to the enemy. In a bold move, he will thrust combat outposts directly into the heart of insurgency-held territory, where his men will live and fight on a 24-hour basis. It will begin by placing two outposts on the southern end of the city to create both a defense line and begin the initial push inward to unlock the insurgency strongholds. With the launch scheduled for mid-June, the young men of the 1st Brigade take to the streets of Ramadi for the first time as their predecessors hand over control of the deadly
6: city. What truly set, at least for me personally, you know, the the stage for, for what I was in for was probably my first or second patrol these terrorists they hit an iraqi army mortars start coming in and as the mortars are flying in a car bomb comes through the serpentine detonates itself and wipes out just about all the iraqi army folks that are there trying to uh, collect all the casualties and medevac them out of there and establish security. We're getting shot at from across the river, but there's other mortars coming in. It was this massive little battle right there, you know, on the banks of the Euphrates in Ramadi. The audacity of that attack really set the tone for me that, that we're dealing with a serious enemy. It did seem that there was no amount of pressure that we could exert on this city outside of just leaving it in rubble that would end the insurgency in Ramadi. On June 5th,
0: 2006, U.S. forces begin construction of two combat outposts, or COPs, inside the city of Ramadi, Cop Iron and Cop Spear.
5: It's a logistical nightmare to do a combat outpost. It requires a, an outer perimeter, which means you have to bring in walls. You have to bring in cement barriers. The amount of trucks that were needed, the amount of outer perimeter walls that were needed, the amount of generators needed, wire, engineers. The point of these things is that you put your unit into them,
3: you live, you sleep, you eat, conducting patrols and offensive operations. You do everything you need to do to sustain yourself inside of these combat outposts inside the city.
5: We were now moving into the enemy's territory. We were now moving into the neighborhoods that he owned, he controlled, and he wanted to maintain.
3: We all move in there right around dusk and and. You know, the enemy can see us from across the river. I mean, they can, they can see what's going on. All the tanks and the Bradleys and the Humvees and the soldiers and everything else that comes along with it. it doesn't take a, a genius to figure out what's coming next.
0: At 12 midnight, cops iron and spear are completed and the enemy launches their attack.
3: The most vulnerable point when you set up a combat outpost is really that first day. One, you're not familiar with the area. You're not familiar with all the angles that you can be engaged with direct fire at. You're not familiar with all the potential vehicle avenues of approach that they can drive vehicle bombs down, and those things you don't know. And the enemy understands that, that, that you are at your weakest point.
1: I knew that it was going to be tough. I mean, no one really knows what it's like to pull the trigger or what it's like to get shot at. And that sense of being naive quickly changed to probably fear once I started to realize how real the threat was. And the only way I was able to cope with that was acceptance. I fully, fully accepted that I was going to die. Once I came to terms with that, everything else was easy. And I realized that the worst thing that can happen is that I die. But what I can never really live with is letting my platoon down. And that's the amount of trust that like, that you build. So I would do anything for those guys.
4: Later, when they had what they call the hero flight, Colonel McFarlane comes out as he does to all these uh, ceremonies. And he hears, you know, the reaction. There's, there's troops, you know, quietly sobbing. This is, for many of them, their first time in combat. And realizes that these guys who are seeing this for the first time don't have time to grieve, really. These guys are going out in several hours back on patrol, and they've got to get back in the game. This is just the start of a very intense tour. They're going to see this kind of combat day after day, week after week, month after month.
0: Ramadi has become a battleground of wills in a war that most feel cannot be won. For the men of the 1st Brigade, undermanned in a massive city, pursuing an invisible enemy with a radical new strategy that has plunged them into deadly urban combat, Ramadi remains the last vestige of hope that the three-year war in Iraq can be turned around. The initial decision of planting two combat outposts on the southern end of Ramadi quickly comes under pressure as the insurgents viciously attack these bristling targets pushing into their vital territory. But even more threatening to the insurgency, American patrols are now being conducted on a daily basis throughout the neighborhoods Al-Qaeda had once controlled. The populace, fearful of contact with the American troops, watch for weeks as the young soldiers, now living amongst them, fight and die to secure their neighborhoods from Al-Qaeda intimidation and retaliation. The protection begins slowly to open the door to trust, something the insurgency cannot afford.
4: The enemy is not, they're not morons. They recognize this as a massive threat they don't want you there and they know if they get pushed out of the city there's no coming back because they have no sympathy from the population so once they get shoved out of the city there's no going back they don't want to give up that terrain
5: i got a great sense of the level of danger of patrolling in a urban environment There's every kind of window and angle for the enemy to attack you that you cannot anticipate. You're looking for anything that is out of the ordinary. Is a gate to a house open that's normally closed? Is a window half open? Is there insurgent behind that window?
6: If all of a sudden, you know, that particular intersection on this street starts to empty out, there was probably an IED, because there always was. Uh, Every day we would be hit by a roadside bomb. Every detail mattered in Ramadi. Every
1: action had a reaction, and it was a very complex chess game that we were fighting against the enemy.
0: As the men of the 1st Brigade engage the insurgency in round-the-clock battles, McFarland raises the stakes. With Ramadi now penetrated on all sides by Army and Marine units, McFarland prepares to send Bulldog Company even deeper into enemy-held territory by the city walls. The deadly operation will require split-second timing and all the forces the battalion can muster.
5: This was a massive level operation to establish one company inside of downtown Ramadi. We're now going to go from being on the outskirts of the city to living in the city. The enemy realized what was going on. They realized that all this construction, all this combat power, we were coming to stay. And this was a major threat to establishing their caliphate in Ramadi. And they were going to do everything in their power to get us out of Cop Falcon.
0: With Cop Falcon in place, support units depart, leaving the 250 men of Bulldog Company alone in the city.
5: the enemy came out in force, a small arms fire, mortar fire, and everything that they had to try and force us to go back outside the city.
0: Taking the fight to the enemy is having the impact on the insurgency McFarland had hoped for, but with unintended and deadly consequences. As 1st Brigade continues to push the insurgents out block by block, The ever-increasing scope of the battlefield is making it impossible to both fight and secure these areas without reinforcements. With US strategy in Iraq drawing down troops, McFarlane must look in another direction. He must find a way to turn the overwhelming number of Ramadi Iraqis who have been intimidated into collaborating with the insurgents into a force willing and even eager to fight Al-Qaeda to the death. He knows Iraq has been a tribal land since time began, and the real authority will never lie with any central government, but with desert sheiks, whose ancient ties of clan and tradition are acknowledged and bowed to by all. Behind the scenes, secret meetings with two brother sheiks have already begun, but with most of the sheiks remaining unconvinced, uncommitted, and often aiding the enemy, the men of the 1st Brigade must keep pushing forward even as death tears at their ranks. But time is running out. Ramadi, like the battles of the Ardennes, Wei City, or Iwo Jima, is proving unwinnable by blistering military technology alone. Ramadi must be won by the only true, indispensable weapon, the Brotherhood of American Soldiers fighting not so much for an obscure desert town, but for one another.
2: Against the Odds returns on AHC.
4: Every day was hell. All
3: of a sudden, it seemed like everything around here, every house, every little window, fire was coming from everywhere.
1: They started firing machine guns, rockets, RPGs. You can
3: see the guys getting hit and still advancing forward.
4: The buck stops here. We put our sweat, blood, and tears into that city.
1: Everything inside of you changed.
4: I hope I get out of this alive. So
1: All new, against the odds.
2: Monday at 10 on AHC.
0: By late August, Ready First and Marine Patrols are taking back enemy held territory, forcing the insurgency into the center of the city. With day and night raids engaging the enemy head on, fighting is close and brutal. The following are three separate operations commencing within hours of each other. 7 a.m., the Bulldogs.
5: We found out from one of the uh, residents that Al Qaeda had set up their headquarters about a block away. This was going to be our first major operation where we were going to clear it out and hopefully clear part of the insurgency out of my portion of South Central Ramon.
3: 12 midnight,
0: Bravo Company.
3: The enemy, you know, I I think at some point started to realize that if they were going to set up shop and, you know, they need a place to sleep and they need a place to resupply, chances are we're probably gonna find out about it within a week or two, and we're gonna be, we're gonna be raiding them at two in the morning.
1: 3 p.m., Alpha Company. I was going north on Route Jolie, which was one of our most dangerous um, routes, and I saw a vehicle that was following us looking at our movement. I saw where the vehicle was going, I was reporting it to headquarters. I thought I saw someone get out of that vehicle and I had a good picture of what he looked like. And he kept looking around the corner. He saw the lead Bradley move north in Jolie, but he didn't see my Bradley. It would have been an easy shot um, to take, but um, I wanted to develop the situation. The SEALs were going to take part of the sector,
5: and an infantry platoon was going to take the other part of the sector. We were generally taking our, our normal route, snaking through the
1: alleyways. Um, we didn't have any vehicles. We are just using silence to cover the darkness. So I called up my gun trucks. I gave a route to them that they should take, and it was the same route that I had taken because to have a gun truck go down a road that wasn't cleared was suicide. The enemy was able to put an IED in the ground and cover it up in a matter of minutes. As soon as the sun started coming
5: up, that's when the enemy fighters started coming out in force.
3: The loudest explosion I ever heard in my life went off. One of my soldiers about four guys in front of me had stepped on an IED.
1: Here comes my gun trucks. Again, they had to go up agility and they had to cross spears. This intersection, we've hit IEDs there so many times. And I'm on the radio with my lead gun truck. As I'm on the radio with current lands, the entire truck blows up. and it was the worst IED that i had ever seen.
5: The enemy sniper hit SEAL Team Ryan Job. They hit his weapon, shattering the pieces and causing initial blindness, which changed the whole dynamic of the operation. Now we have a wounded in action that needed to be medevaced out of it.
3: The first thing I remember is, I felt the shrapnel penetrate my legs and go throughout the back. I looked down and my interpreter next to me had a whole chunk of his knee more or less ripped off and he was screaming. And the soldier who had actually stepped on it, he had one leg entirely ripped off and the other one was pretty much gone already. It was almost like surreal. I did get on the radio, said, hey, we need a medevac immediately. It was just absolute chaos.
5: I made the call to start withdrawing forces. I was about ready to leave, and that's when all hell broke loose.
1: Closest to the action, so we came to evacuate him and, and his crew. As I'm coming from the east, I hit an IED. And it was a complex attack. As soon as the dismounts came out, we started taking small arms fire. My radio is disabled. My gunner and my driver both had concussions. I get out of the vehicle. and I'm on the ground evacuating the casualties out of the vehicle and and trying to take command and control of what was now in the middle of a firefight. And Sergeant Lance was killed.
5: When the enemy is there and firing at you, all those type of decisions are split seconds. A wrong decision can have consequences of your soldiers being killed.
3: It's that tribal mentality of, you know, the guy to your left and your right is, you know, one of you and you're one of him and you're there to, to watch out for each other. And it's almost like just deep programmed into our brains that that's how we behave under the worst circumstances, you know, when we're in,
1: in that tr- kind of tribal dynamic. All we had was each other, really. And it was just us out there. We were a close-knit crew. We were a family. And we were each other's shoulder to cry on and, and, and strength at the same time.
0: The incredible sacrifice by the men of the 1st Brigade is doing more than taking back enemy-held territory. It is having an impact on the mindset of Ramadi's citizens, and more importantly, its trusted sheikhs, who see the 1st Brigade fighting and dying every day on their behalf.
4: The story of Ramadi is very much one of a group of tribal sheikhs led by uh, Sitar, a very brave sheikh who would ultimately lose his life. He was the first one to say, I'm going to join with the US.
2: When we got there, there was only 200 policemen in town. One of the things that we knew that was going to be key to victory was the locals will never trust us. So the sooner that we could get a police force built, then it's them policing themselves.
4: They can't sit on every block with an M-16 with a bayonet on it, making sure things are secure. They just don't have the people to do that. They cannot win this war without the Iraqis on board.
0: With the 1st Brigade stretched dangerously thin, the Iraqi police enlistment drive just inching forward. An unexpected emergency call on November 25th becomes the turning point in the battle to finish the insurgency and cement the awakening of the tribes against Al-Qaeda. A frantic satellite call from a breathless sheikh in the outlying town of Safiya fortuitously lands in the lap of Lieutenant Colonel Chuck Ferry. They are wiping out my tribe. They are killing my family. I need your help. With most of the sheikhs remaining unconvinced of enough vivid evidence of the Americans' reliability, Ferry makes one of the gutsiest decisions of the war on his godsend chance to show them that his soldiers are willing to match blood and tears being spilled by Iraqis against Al-Qaeda, drop for drop. A crucial alliance that will be paid for with fallen Americans. In the Persian Gulf on board the USS Dwight D. Eisenhower, He orders flights of F-A-18s to make shrieking, treetop-level bluff passes over Sofia. The ground-shaking thunder of the swooping, ordnance-loaded jets send the Al-Qaeda attackers in a panicked scramble out of town. Once in the open, the insurgents are sitting ducks for both F-18s and 1st Brigade tanks.
4: Baghdad has taken center stage in the news lately, but the good news story from Iraq is now coming from the capital city of Al Anbar province. Six months ago there were no police on the streets, but now young men from Ramadi are stepping up to the plate and asking, where do I sign?
0: When the word of the Americans' total commitment reaches the sheikhs, what has been a steady trickle to the awakening becomes a flood to Sheikh Satar and the U.S. coalition. The bold and gutsy decision of McFarland's men secured the Battle of Ramadi.
4: It flipped a switch, and that confidence building—kind of amazing how quick once it started, it it just it just skyrocketed. Because you saw these police numbers that started like this just go way up over the course of the summer and into the fall.
5: We started to see a shift the attacks got less intense. The frequency of the attacks, instead of becoming daily, were maybe a couple times a week. People were moving back. Stores were reopening. Children were playing in the street. Six months ago, a child wouldn't even venture outside his house. Now they were playing soccer in the streets. So the fruits of our labor after six months were clearly seen.
0: In less than a year, the 1st Brigade in the 1st Armored Division, along with the Marines, have taken a radical new strategy, deemed by most to be impossible, and with limited resources and manpower, turned the most dangerous city in the world into the safest city in Iraq. With these incredible exploits against the odds becoming known at last, General David Petraeus tells McFarland, I'm so happy I could kiss you guys and then to his staff, we've got to support this." He will use Ramadi as the new blueprint for U.S. strategy in Iraq.
4: Tonight in Iraq, the armed forces of the United States are engaged in a struggle that will determine the the direction of the global war on terror and our safety here at home.
0: Recognizing the heavy price paid by the 1st Brigade for success with so few men, known as the Surge, President Bush orders the deployment of more than 20,000 soldiers to Iraq to support the new strategy.
4: In these dangerous times, the United States is blessed to have extraordinary and selfless men and women willing to step forward and defend us.
6: Ian Blackstone. Being a platoon leader in Ramad, that experience has made me who I am. It shaped my character, my outlook on life. I feel very honored and privileged to have had the opportunity to have served with the Men at Dealer Company. Mike Byma. For the
5: rest of my time in the Army, will probably never match the honor of leading those men in combat. To this day, my men still call me Main Gun Mike Baima, and I wear that title with, with honor.
1: Perfecto Sanchez. I'm doing this because I want the story to be told. And for the guys who didn't get to come home, or for the guys who have never really let the war pass, I want their story to be told as well. Mike McCusker.
3: In terms of the pride, I guess, and the impact, taking the city of Ramadi, that was absolutely at it the worst it could possibly be. Under the control of some of the worst organizations in the world, Al Qaeda, who were doing things as bad as decapitating people in the middle of the street, executing people inside their houses in the middle of the night, and in taking that city and changing it over to something that someone could live a normal life in, yeah, that was absolutely. I'd say that's the high point of my career.
0: Anthony Dean.
2: You know, we did what what could be done. I mean. Our own headquarters said that the battle was lost. We refused to believe that, and Crom laid a path clear to win. And we found a way to win, kind of against the odds.
0: This podcast was produced by the American Heroes Channel. I'm your host, Shane Bowler.